In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Sandy. Today we speak with Janet Gregory, a successful Silicon Valley tech maven and the breadwinner of her family. Janet was an early employee at a startup in the late 90s and wasn't sure the business plan would take off. Much to her delight, it did. The company IPO'd and the stock price went through the roof. And then the dot-com bubble burst. As the stock went from its highest highs to its lowest lows, Janet and her husband watched their funds dwindle. Their nest egg was now, jokingly, only enough to buy a latte at Starbucks. This expensive lesson made Janet and her husband realize that they needed a trusted financial advisor to help them make better decisions and get out of the buy and ignore mindset they were in. Hey, this is Cammie. Janet has over 25 years of corporate experience in Silicon Valley, including two successful startups. She's held multiple management roles in business development, sales, marketing, and customer service. Janet's also been a turnaround exec and a founder. Now she consults, she flies planes, and she just published her fourth book, Age of Freedom, which discusses women's changing relationship with the paid work world as they achieve financial independence. Please stick around after the interview for our takeaways from this discussion. Now, on to our conversation with Janet Gregory. Janet Gregory, welcome to Money Tales. Thank you for having me. So glad you're here. To get the conversation started, Janet, will you give us a brief overview of your life, focusing on two or three key pivotal moments that make you the person that you are today? Quite honestly, I think I'm just an ordinary person. I'm rooted in basic, hardworking Midwest values. I was born and raised in the upper Midwest. In my high school years, midway through high school, I was uprooted and moved to the Washington DC area. And there, it was quite interesting because coming from a smaller town environment, all of a sudden I was thrust into the dynamics and culture of Washington DC area. After high school, I went to North Carolina to a small private college. And then after working for that school, actually, for a couple of years, I moved to California with my soon-to-be husband and launched my career in high-tech sales. So as a result, I claim to be a Midwesterner, a Southerner, and from both the right coast and the left (laughs) coast. So that's kind of the overview. But you asked about pivotal moments. I'd say the three pivotal moments, and maybe they don't even all relate to our topic, but one was working my way through school. The second was a blind date and a five-cent bet. 
And the third was my first Silicon Valley startup company. Now, maybe not as important is learning to fly and to be a pilot and discovering, or maybe I'll say it's rediscovering the joy of writing. So that's my little summary and pivot points. Let's start with your childhood. Tell us more about what it was like growing up in the Midwest and then moving to DC from a money perspective. Well, I was the youngest of three children. So the way I look at it is mom and dad got to practice on the other two. (laughs) And what I learned as a result was that allowances are earned. They are not given. We all had chores. Saving was also a fundamental part of this. I had a piggy bank. And you have to remember, this is back in the dark ages. I had a bank passbook. And when the piggy bank filled up, we'd take it to the bank, mom and I. I'd go up to this high wooden teller cage that looked very ominous, solemn and important. And I would hand my money and my passbook over. And darn, if they didn't make a note in it, it was very exciting. Let's see. So also some other things earned extra money around the house with some special chores, which got to be very lucrative. And I also got to observe different kinds of money habits. My oldest brother, he's a spender. Money for him was like holding on to a handful of sand. Now, my middle brother was different. He was a saver and a spender. He had specific short-term goals. I want a catcher's mint. I want a toy truck. I want something for my bike. So I was a little bit more like my middle brother. I was a saver and a spender. But I also had this other little aspect, which was interesting, is I never wanted to see what I've always called a dry well. I never wanted to see my bank account hit zero. So I was always very careful in my spending, and I would not spend everything that I had. Janet, how come? We taught certain behaviors around money and making sure there wasn't a dry well, there was no empty bottom to this bank account, or is it just in your nature? Tell us more about that. I think there was a little fear factor there that you would be without. Who would you say taught you the most about money? Well, both mom and dad, but honestly, it was dad mostly. And when I think about those conversations, it's going to sound funny that maybe they were only really once a year, but I'm sure they were reinforced all year. But we would do these annual vacations. And so remember, we live in the Midwest, and we'd either drive to the East Coast or we would drive to Florida. But we always drove and we were visiting friends or family. Quite often, my brothers were at summer camp, and so I had mom and dad all to myself. All the better was I had dad all to myself because mom slept most of the way in the car. So these long drives were pretty cool. So remember, this is now the 50s and the 60s, before all of our smart technology. We actually did something very shocking, and we talked to each other. We listened to the radio. We would discuss news topics. We would play games in the car. Dad and I, we would talk about everything. We'd talk about science. We'd talk about news items. 
we talked a lot about the space program, which was just exploding at that time. We talked a lot about careers, and quite frankly, I really think those conversations helped me navigate to my career. We talked a lot about money, and we talked about setting goals. So those were some big things. Jenna, this sounds incredibly special, these conversations. I have the most wonderful memories of those times in the car. It's just amazing. So I want to share with you, there were key lessons that have to do with money. Three of them, I really think, are basic life lessons, but they're critical to the money lessons. So the three life lessons were, you know all this stuff. It's work hard, set goals, and be true to yourself. Really, that was it. Sounds simple, right? Work hard. You can achieve anything in life, in work, with money. And one of the lessons around the work hard is if you are without money, you can always earn it. And also, my dad gave me tremendous respect for what might be considered more humble occupations because they have great value and to always respect them. And if you don't work hard, you'll get what you get. And truth is, you might get a lot, but you might also get absolutely nothing if you don't work hard. So the second of the lessons was to set goals. And also in setting goals, don't be afraid to reevaluate and change those goals. And those goals can be about money and we, anything. We talked about them. Uh, money, life, education, career, all those things you talk about with your mom and your dad. The interesting thing on money is that dad used to say that money is absolutely not the most important thing in the world. But if you have a bit of money, everything else is a lot easier. So we have respect for it, but don't worship it. Don't worship money. And one of his key points was, if you do not set any goals, how do you know you're ever making any progress? How do you even know where you are if you don't have goals? The way I think about this today, it's like a GPS without putting a destination. A GPS is really smart. It knows where it is, but it has nowhere to go. So that was kind of goofy. But the third one was also really important, and that was being true to your own core value and not to lie to yourself. Don't lie to others. Don't cheat. See how ordinary and basic this is? Don't steal. But one of the most important things in the core values is don't disappoint yourself. Don't look back at yourself and be disappointed. So I learned those little simple basic things. You know, an honest day's work has lifelong value. Dishonesty will haunt you and will not bring you happiness. So those were the three basic life lessons, okay? And so you can kind of see them slowly weaving into the money question. But here were the two money lessons, and they're short. One, money does not grow on trees. Contrary to popular belief, money does not grow on trees. But lesson number two, be a gardener. You can grow money. If you plant those three little seeds of the life lesson, hard work, setting goals and strong values, you can actually grow and make money. And that's what you set out to do. And 
that was what I set out to do. You mentioned a first job. I'm really curious. What was it? I worked in a nursing home as a candy striper. And that was because I was before the age where you were actually allowed to earn money. Now, the good news was because I liked working, so I enjoyed it. And I learned something important in that job, reciprocity. If you give, you will get. And I enjoyed it. And darned if that didn't lead to paying jobs afterward when I was finally of age where I could have a job. So that was the first job. But then we remember we moved to Washington, D.C. in this crazy, hectic thing. And I got a job working for the government. In the wow. Summer. Oh, well, there were some government stories I can tell you. They're <laughs> like, I don't think the department I work for worked all year. They waited for us summer interns to come in. And we did all the work and caught them up until the next year when the summer interns returned. That was my honest to God belief about that. Jenna, I'm curious about whether there was a change in your family's orientation or conversation about money moving from the Midwest to D.C. I think of D.C. because of the presence of all the politicians as being a very moneyed place. Did you notice anything different when your family moved? Yes, I think it is very different because you have so much interaction between different factions that happen there. And there was clearly more focus on status than I had ever seen. And all of a sudden becoming aware of different levels of wealth that, I mean, from poverty to the very wealthy, the importance of having money and not going out without it, it was quite different. And if you think about being raised in a small town, or I was just about 16 when we moved, and being completely uprooted. I mean, it just turns your life on its head. Not always in a bad way, but because all of a sudden there's these cultural things. They had these phenomenal museums and that I would love to go to and talks that you could attend and, okay, excuse me, but rock and roll concerts <laughs> you could go to and, you know, things like that. So it was actually kind of fun. <laughs> Can you say more about the status part? And did that impact your own ability to be a spender who doesn't spend all of her money as a young person? Status doesn't interest me either today or then. And it probably actually ended up bringing out a little rebelliousness in me as a result. My mom and dad joined a country club. I wanted nothing to do with it. So I guess there was a little rebellious. And quite honestly, oh, I actually felt like I lived a bit of this life of Walter Mitty. You know, one hand, I got good grades and belonged to various um, activities in school. And on the other hand, this is the hippie era. And I was out experimenting. So that actually leads me to something, though, that might have more to do with our talk. Because I selected a college to attend that was far enough away from home that my parents couldn't drop in on me so that I could foster my independence, but yet close enough to home if I needed something. 
I loved college. I loved this small private school I selected to go to. And at the end of my sophomore year, right before the year closed, my dad lost his job. And he told me that I would be living at home next year and going to the local university because he could not afford the private college. Well, as I said, I loved the college. I loved my independence. So my goal, thinking about what dad taught me, my goal was to figure out how to attend college without mom and dad's help. How could I do that? So I went to the college financial aid office. This taught me, aha, the power of an advisor to help guide you. So my advisor, Mr. Woodside, was in the financial aid office, and he helped me navigate through this crazy maze of scholarship possibilities, student loans, and even a campus job where I became a residence assistant or an RA. That helped pay for my housing. I paid for my tuition. I paid for my room and board. I figured out how to do it. So I said, Dad, I am going back to that school and I'm putting myself through school. And, uh, but I also needed some spending money. So I then planted the next seed of hard work to make some money. I did really simple, stupid stuff. I did babysitting. I did house cleaning. And this taught me that I could earn the money that I needed, but also the power of networking. Because as I worked for one person, they gave me referrals to others. I also learned the value of money in terms of work. I longed to buy this beautiful bentwood rocking chair for my dorm room. And it would take 40 hours of house cleaning to earn it. And darned if I didn't just go do that. But I learned a couple of other things. I tapped into my skills and talents in a new way. I like to sew. I like to cook. I started reupholstering furniture and making drapes. Very lucrative, high value add. Cooking. Aha. Catering parties. And then here's where I started my dad's philosophy of being a gardener. I got more business than I could handle because I also was maintaining my schoolwork. So I hired other students. I didn't realize this at the time, and I wouldn't have even thought of myself this way, but I guess I was a bit of an entrepreneur. And if you would, this was my first startup. So by the end of my junior year, I had a very successful business that it was expanding. It was adding my skills and the skills of other students. We did a whole bunch of different things that we added to it. I even gave my company a name. The company name was Ala Padrida which means a miscellanea, and we'd list all the things that we did. And do you remember this old stuff called mimeograph paper? We mimeographed our flyers, and we circulated them all over the place. And I will tell you what, we had a big, booming business. It was fun. Wow, you franchised Janet. <laughs> I guess, yeah, I guess I did, and that was my first startup company. <laughs> How many people were working for you? At, you remember? At peak... At peak, it was probably 25 of us. Whoa. Both uh, men and women, or I guess we always thought of ourselves at that time as boys and girls, but men and women uh, all chipping in. And the fun thing was, after my senior year was over, one of the guys said, can I take on your business? And I'm like, well, sure, go ahead. It's all yours, you know? And 
then he did the coordination and took care of all that stuff. I'm trying to put myself into your shoes as a college student and just about halfway through and dad loses his job. Sounds really scary. Oh, it was devastating. I, I devastating. I didn't want to live back at home. I mean, I love my mom and dad. It was a great house. I mean, like, uh-uh, I wasn't going there. So had, I had to figure out how to be a gardener. I mean, I even remember one of my scholarships. I applied for every last scholarship. One scholarship, the value of it was $50. But my financial advisor at the school, he said, you apply for all of them. You don't know where it leads. And part of it is it also introduces you to new people and it expands your network. It just expands you. So give us the next feeling. You know, this scary time, but then you, you figure it out and you've got 25 people working for you. How'd that make you feel? I was just having a blast. That's all I can say. It was so much fun. And this was the, the classic work hard and play hard. And there wasn't a minute that wasn't engaged with something going on. And that was just a blast. Did you think about keeping the business and remaining there? Well, that never crossed my mind. It was a stepping stone to achieving a goal, which was to graduate. And what's interesting is I stayed and worked for the college for two years after I graduated. And I guess maybe you could say I was an advisor to the, the man who took over my little school business. But for the most part, it was just a stepping stone. I moved on. I was very happy to move on. And I also enjoyed working for the school, which introduced me to some of my first skills because I was working in the admissions office. And when you look at school admissions attracting students, this was actually my first sales role. I ended up with a career in high-tech sales, but this introduced me to enjoying the whole fundamentals of selling, really feeling that you are bringing value to someone else and staying true to your own values as you are in the role of sales for an organization, no matter what type of organization it is. All right. I'm ready to hear, Janet, about that blind date. My husband and I met on a blind date, obviously. And we ended up moving to California. He had gone to college in California. And that's where he felt he had the best prospects for business. So we packed up with $750 between us, everything in the back of an old Dodge van, powered by, believe it or not, propane. So it was actually, we didn't call them green at the time, but a green vehicle. And we moved across the country. We had goals. We wanted to build a life together. And how those goals panned out, it started with a budget. And we stuck to it. We both agreed we wanted to spend money. We wanted to make money, but we wanted to be wise about it. So we set a budget. The food budget and the fun budget was all in one. 20 bucks a week. Sounds scary. In today's dollars, that's probably $100 a week, I'm guessing. And any money left over, even literally pennies, was rolled into savings. 
And it was a little bit of a challenge is could we actually have fun, eat well, and save a little money? One of the other things that was interesting is we were worried that we were both in volatile industries. Neither of us were in businesses with pensions. I had chosen high-tech sales, as you now know, and my husband was in aviation. He was a corporate pilot. So what we did, we set our first goal was to live on one salary and save the other because of our concern of the volatility and having one of us being out of work. It turned out that our jobs were not volatile, which was good. The other interesting thing, if you think about the old-fashioned egos of the time, I always have made more money than my husband, but that was never an issue. It was us working together, and we did. Our first big goal was to buy a house, and that $750 that we moved out to California with, in less than two years, we bought our first house. The next big goal I remember was that we wanted to have, you know, we're reading about millionaires. We wanted to have a million dollars. At that time, we thought about it as gross asset value. So the value of everything, stocks, the home, the car, forget about the debt. It was just gross value is what we were looking for. And it took us less than 10 years to achieve that. So then the next tune-up, that goal was, no, let's make that million dollars net worth. So the value of all the assets minus the liability and the debt and the mortgages. That only took two, maybe three years once you start focusing on it. So I guess what we reaffirmed or what we learned was if you focus on a goal, you can achieve it. And in most cases, you can do it even faster than you ever expected. But we, you know, we also looked for a little help. We read Money Magazine or whatever the finance magazines were of the day. My dad was also a financial advisor of sorts up until he passed away in 95. There was one book, I don't know, know if it exists anymore, but just the title of it will give you an idea. The book was called A Millionaire Next Door. And that book had so many cool little ideas, hints, and tips in it. And whatever today's books are, like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, that came out then years later, and then whatever the books are today, pick up the books and read articles about money and people's stories. You can learn more from that. Janet, it sounds like you and your husband, as you tell it today, have never had a problem talking about money. Sounds like that was something natural that happened between the two of you in setting goals. Was it really like that? Well, you might not really believe it, but it is like that. <laughs> we review and discuss everything together. One of the things is we don't like to make snap decisions. We will make fast decisions and we'll make firm decisions. But a lot of times when it comes to money, we actually like to sleep on it. And I mean, literally, it sounds silly, sleep on it. And then discuss it again, and then take it and move forward. So you kind of got me thinking about how we handle money inside of our household. It kind of evolved. I don't remember us really talking about it, but we have only one person that handles all the financial transactions in our house. We talk about everything. We review everything with each other, but I'm the one that pays all the bills. I do the taxes. And 
at least for the two of us, we thought it was important that one person handles the majority of the actual work work on that for consistency. Households will do it differently. We also, you have to remember, grew up together with money. We, we meet right fresh out of college. And now we've been together long time. So we're very comfortable with money. A big lesson we learned along the way. Ooh, this took, this was a little painful lesson. So this came from my first Silicon Valley startup company. Oh my God, do I love startup companies. This was my first one. And I started when the concept was just a set of PowerPoint slides. So I was on the founding executive team. We didn't even know if this product was going to work. Well, we ended up getting the company profitable. We took it to a successful IPO and later sold the company. So here's my first startup company. My husband and I were so excited with the possibilities. At first, you know, I'm a stockholder, right? I'm one of the founding executives. Look at that stock value. We're on easy street. Then the dot-com bubble burst. Look at that stock value. Mm, we'll have a comfortable retirement, we said in our conversations. Okay, then the economy continued to soften. Well, you know, that's a good bonus. You know, you have to feel good about that for all those years you put into it. And then the company was finally sold. And my husband looks at me and he goes, we can afford to go buy a latte at Starbucks. <laughs> that is when together as a team, my husband and I learned our fourth lesson, which was, oh my God, you have to have an advisor. So we finally got a financial advisor. We met Helen. I wish I had known Helen even just a few years sooner. Maybe I could have bought a croissant with my latte if I had known her sooner. But anyway, having an advisor makes all the difference. So then when I started with my second Silicon Valley startup, things were very different. One of the big lessons I learned is you cannot become emotionally attached to your money. I was so emotionally attached to the stock at that first startup company that I could not part with it. Had I parted with it sooner, the story would have been different. So with the second startup and Helen as our trusted advisor, we made money. And as we made money, we were able to maximize our earnings and reduce the possibilities of losses. So it was that great advice and timing of an advisor. Now, we've been with this advisory firm for over 20 years. So I'll tell you something interesting also about an advisor. It's okay to change your advisors. I'm still with the same advisory firm, my husband and I. I shouldn't say I. We are. But we now work with Cliff because a couple things. One, our needs changed. And our first advisor, Helen, was moving into more senior roles with the firm. Her financial sophistication was surpassing us in spades. Hers evolved, but ours did not. So we needed someone who would work with us on our more basic terms. And then also, we were ultimately moving from the world of income to the world of cash flow. 
And having made the change, we couldn't be happier with the amazing advisory friends. And the other lesson you've learned in here, not only not to become emotionally attached to your money, but there was this old strategy called buy and hold, which my husband and I refer to as buy and ignore. That was also what we did. Don't do that. Money requires your attention. And this is where an advisor is good. They pay attention to this stuff. So I don't have to. Yay! Advisor. <laughs> I don't want to pay attention to that stuff. Janet, it's such great wisdom. I'm curious. You talked about not wanting to part with the stock that you got emotionally attached. What was happening with your colleagues? Were you talking about the money with them? Was there a lot of financial literacy type conversations or just the potential wealth? What were the conversations happening at the firm? Well, at this time, there were no conversations going on. I think if there were, perhaps I would have approached this all more intelligently. What we looked at was this incredible cash in the bank. Well, it wasn't cash, it was stock value. And that was what we looked at. Oh, and we would get the Wall Street Journal and we would watch the indicators. And oh, that was so exciting. But did we ever talk about the upsides and the downsides and the what ifs? No, we did not talk about that. I believe that in today's world, the startup companies or more early stage growing companies are much more aware and do help others understand money better than was in my day. And I know by the time I got my second startup, I clearly propagated those conversations about how to think about it, how to invest in it, the importance of investing, and the importance of not getting too emotionally tied to it. Janet, I'm curious, the emotional connection you had at the first startup, did the lesson of that investment going south on you cause you to realize and learn that the emotional connection wasn't helpful? Or did you learn when you got your advisor involved? Well, the timing pretty well coincided. I really have to credit the advisor for pointing out the obvious. I'm not sure I would have seen it without that assistance, quite honestly, because it all happened right at the same time. Maybe it's like when you go to the doctor and they say, well, you have a cold. Oh, is that why I feel bad? Okay, I got it. I'll go take care of that. Thanks for sharing because I think money is emotional for many people in many different circumstances. And I think it can be really hard to have that awareness. So your answer was very helpful. I was also surprised that I was emotionally attached to my money because I had never thought that was the case. I always thought I was relatively pragmatic, but because I was so attached to that startup company, the two were inextricably linked. Did you find yourself going back to that linkage at other points in time with other startups? Or did your awareness prevent you from going there? Well, from a career standpoint, I absolutely stayed as emotionally tied to the organization as I ever was, because I love that. That's the passion, the excitement, the enthusiasm, the what makes a startup so darn much fun. But to the stock value, no, 
I looked immediately to, at that time it was Helen, Helen, what do we do? I even remember there was one time, my husband and I are on vacation, we're off skiing, and we are calling back and forth and sending documents back and forth. Here it is, it's over the Christmas and New Year's holidays, and we're at a ski resort, and she says, it's time for you to sell half of your stock and had reasons why and darned if we didn't get off the hill make sure we took care of it and that made all the difference and bought the lovely house that we are in today <laughs> that's great news thank you helen and thank you helen but okay you've gone through this amazing experience you obviously are really passionate about startups and what you were building but after that financial loss was it hard to go join another startup how did that come about there's part of me that thinks ugh. Never go there again. Well, one of the gals that worked at that particular startup, I love her quote. She said, once you work for a startup, you will either never do it again or never do anything else. And she is absolutely true. I love that clarity of focus that you have in a startup. You know exactly where you're going and everybody is on the same page. It's very exciting. I didn't even skip a heartbeat. I'm a gardener. I was going on to grow the next thing. And so it was another startup company after that. Then after that second startup and its IPO, then I started my own consulting company, which I have had active now for 17 years. And it's still going strong. And I don't know, it just wasn't even a question. Jenna, I also want to ask about something you mentioned earlier, which was being the breadwinner of your family. Now, it was never a problem for your husband. What was it like for you? I didn't think much about it, quite honestly. I was kind of proud of it. <laughs> and my career was growing at a time when women were just beginning to earn their way in the business world. I can point out a lot of my jobs. Oh, I was the first woman doing this and the first woman doing that whether it was my company or an industry or whatever. And over a cocktail, I could tell you some funny stories <laughs> that that led to because it really was a man's world. And you had to build toughness and a good sense of humor and also a little bit of what allows water to roll off of a duck's back. You just have to roll with it. There's some things you just have to roll with. There's been a lot of studies done about how women are underpaid relative to men. Since you were at the forefront of the first among women in business, did you have experiences needing to negotiate compensation? You do have to negotiate compensation. The key things then as now, now it's probably easier to do than it was then. But what is the relative value? What's the value of that job? If they're hiring a man with the same experience that I bring to a job, what would he earn? Well, there is no reason, the way I looked at it, that I shouldn't earn the same exact thing. And I would ask for it and just in that kind of, it only makes sense way. Because you say that's what the job's worth, then that's what the job's worth. The thing that I especially loved about sales 
and being in a commissioned environment is your hard work directly results in your income. And I really enjoyed that direct relationship. And then there's no question about what you've achieved and what you haven't. Now can we hear about the nickel? <laughs> well, the nickel is sometimes on this blind date. I am sitting across the table and talking to this man that was absolutely the most phenomenal individual I had ever met. And in my family, remember I said, you, you don't want to set some goals. You want to be true to yourself. So I bet him a nickel that I could kiss him without touching him. <laughs> this was our first date. So I had set this goal. Oh, I wanted to see this man again. There was no question in my mind. So I pushed a nickel across the table and I kissed him. That is fantastic. <laughs> and all these years later, actually what I tell him and all of my friends is 47 and a half years, life sentence, no parole. <laughs> Congratulations. You are releasing your fourth book called Age of Freedom. Would you talk a little bit about getting into picking up your passion for writing and What's driving this? So I am getting ready to publish my fourth book. The book is called The Age of Freedom. And I love to write with a co-author, which is a little unusual for most people, but I love collaborating on things. And all four of my books have uh, co-authors. This one started with the idea of what is it like for a professional woman to retire? Many of us professional women don't have role models because our mothers may have worked outside the home, but maybe we're not professionals to the same degree that we are. So I had this big question about professional women retiring. And so I got together with my co-author and what we did was we circulated a survey that over 650 women responded to. And we learned something that surprised and didn't surprise us at the same time. And that is that you actually don't ever have to retire is one thing. Retirement is not inevitable, but you may change at your own behest. You may change your relationship with the work world. And the Age of Freedom is a book that talks about changing your relationship with the work world. And we've coined terms about three different stages that women will move smoothly between, back and forth between them. One is being in the thick of it. That's that hard charging part of your career that's all consuming into perhaps working on your own terms. For me, that was consulting. For others, perhaps it's one or more part-time jobs, or maybe it's starting their own company. It could be any number of things. And we call that my own terms, working on my own terms. And then the third classification 
And we try not to use the word retirement because of the horrible amount of baggage associated with it. But you may choose to be out of the paid work world because what you will find is professional women are not doing nothing. They are not sitting on the couch watching Netflix and eating bonbons. They are doing things and they're busy. And so what is that? And so this survey of 650 women is amazingly illuminating. And so our book is just filled with all of their stories, every last one of them. And when they agree or disagree with each other, that's a good thing. So it gives you a different perspective. So we're very excited about it. And it will be on Amazon by the beginning of September. So it's called The Age of Freedom. Congratulations, Janet. It sounds fascinating. Thanks. I'm excited about it. So interesting. I can't wait to read it. Oh, well, good. I think it'll be a, a fun one. So, but I also have some other goals. I would really like to fly all the way across the country in our own airplane. So this means you're staying close enough to the ground so you can see what's happening and you can stop in places and visit and stay as long or short as you like. And uh, we'll probably fly the southern route in one direction and the northern route in the other, doing a combination of visiting friends, family, and sightseeing. But that is a big goal for me is to fly all the way across the country. I'm curious, why did you get your pilot's license? To me, it scares me. It must be that entrepreneur, entrepreneurial gene that you have. But what made you want to go get your pilot's license? And Janet, I'm going to add on to Cammie's question and ask you to cover the money aspects of it, because I think that'll be fascinating for our listeners. Oh, the money aspect. Okay. So the reason to get my pilot's license was purely problem solving. Well, okay. I know that your listeners are from anywhere around the country, but my career years were in Silicon Valley in the San Francisco Bay area. And as my husband's and my work relationships changed. We decided to move out of the Bay Area and moved up to Yosemite National Park area. And it is a three-hour drive with no traffic and five-hour drive with traffic. You only have to do that a few times as I was consulting when I'm realizing if I had an airplane, it's 45 minutes, I can laugh at the traffic and enjoy the beauty of this amazing world we live in and fly home. So it was problem solving. Now, the question of money. There's only two things you need to get a pilot's license, time and money. Time is because you have to be in the airplane and it takes a certain amount of time. The minimum amount of time in an airplane is 40 hours. Most people, it takes 60 to even 80 hours of flight time for them to get their license. And the second thing is money because you have to rent an airplane. You have to rent an instructor to sit next to you while you're learning. So it's not just you in the airplane, it's your instructor the whole way. But I'll tell you what, it was so freaking worth it. And I am addicted to aviation and having such fun. 
and do a lot of volunteer work with various aviation organizations and events. So it's become another love in my life too. Janet, what is your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? There are two money conversations and because of the phase of life that we're in is I want to have a conversation with our honorary daughter and son about what it, the role of an executor because they will be taking on that responsibility. And we don't know that there will be any money left at the end of the day. We aren't going to leave them dry well, so maybe there's not much to deal with, but there is still a lot of responsibilities that are associated with that. And the second conversation, and we'll have this with Cliff, who is our financial advisor, is should cryptocurrency be in our portfolio? One of the things that we learn from those marvelous young people in our life is that they're approaching money in a different way. And they're seeing the value of the new currencies. They see the value of having multiple income flows into a household. And so I would like to learn from what they're learning and be able to leverage that. This both sound like great conversations to have. Janet, thank you so much for speaking with us on Money Tales. You have such great stories and there's so much learning in here for all of us. And I just have an image of you, age of freedom, Janet flying through the air across the country with her husband. (laughs) There's nothing that sounds more free than that. We wish the best to you. Thank you. And congratulations again on your fourth upcoming book. Thank you very much. Sandy, tell me what's a takeaway from our conversation with Janet Gregory that you'd like to emphasize for our listeners? I really enjoyed the conversation, Cammie, and Janet kept calling herself an ordinary Janet. I think there's nothing ordinary about her. She has so many great experiences in her life, so many wonderful insights that she shared with us. One thing I really appreciated was what she shared with us about growing up and those long drives with her dad and mom in the car when mom would kind of fall off to sleep and she and her dad would talk about money and lots of interesting things. And that seemed to be a really good seed planting within Janet. And certainly she took that knowledge with her to college and started a fantastic business. I loved it. Her first startup. Her first startup. I thought that was incredible. Not only that she started the business, but that she had people working with her and she handed the business off when she was done. She was so tenacious. I mean, the feeling she must have had when She's being called back home for the cost of college. And then she didn't want that to happen. So then she solved the problem. What a bunch of feelings, like the feeling of this baby being taken away from me to the pride of creating the money to allow her to continue in that college. I, I just, I loved it. I thought that was very inspiring. What about you, Cammie? What's the takeaway for you? Sandy, I really appreciated her talking about hiring an advisor. I think a lot of people out there, they think they have to do it all themselves. There's something about financial services that we think 
you know, dentists don't do dentistry on themselves. We've spoken with a podcast guest who talked about we're not supposed to lay the plumbing in the house we buy. So why do we think we have to do it all ourselves? And Jenna was so forthright with the first entrepreneurial company she was part of and writing that stock up and they're looking at all that money. And then it went away. I just wrote it all the way down. They're not the only one. There's so many people that happened to. And then she and her husband realized we're not doing that again. So they hired an advisor and I really appreciated. She talked about money requires your attention. And this is where an advisor, a financial advisor, wealth manager is really important. They pay attention so you don't have to. And she didn't want to really pay attention to all the details. And as a result, she found a great partner, a trusted partner. She still was involved. This isn't like one of those you just hand it off, but that was really powerful. And as a result, she and her husband are in a much better position today. That was an exciting story. And I too was glad that Janet shared that. Can we, can we talk a bit about the age of freedom? Because that was a big eye opener for me too. Mm-hmm. Worked with lots of women who have been successful in their lives, lots of clients who have done amazing things and who have achieved financial independence and have moved away from their formal careers. But I had never really thought about it in the historical context of these women have been the first in history to make those choices. Unbelievable, right? What a time we're living through. And the fact that she and her writing partner did a bunch of research to find out what are these women up to? What are they doing? And they continue to do amazing things. I thought that was great. A good reminder that we don't need to be working in order to contribute and add value to the world. There's a lot of opportunity outside of full-time career jobs to make a difference. I'm glad you said that. And I'm excited to read the book. I love that it's Janet's fourth book. You know, she probably wrote it as she was flying her plane, commuting back and forth. <laughs> she just seems like one of those people who can do many, many things at the same time. I hope she didn't write it while she was flying that plane. It really is an interesting analysis of these wave of women who were pioneers and that now they're taking that same energy and value creation to an area, not necessarily having to focus on money making efforts, but contributing to the world. And hats off to them and hats off to Janet and her writing partner for bringing this book to us. Yes. Thank you so much, Janet. And thank you, Money Tales listeners for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We did. Remember, you can email us at podcasts at aspirant.com. That podcast plural, aspirant is A-S-P-I-R-I-A-N-T.com. We'd love to hear your stories. And please share this episode with those that you think would enjoy it too. See you next time on Money Tales. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.